Welcome to the Veritas Forum. This is the Veritas Forum podcast, a place where ideas and beliefs converge. What I'm really going to be watching is which one has the resources in their worldview to be tolerant, respectful, and humble toward the people they disagree with. How do we know whether the lives that we're living are meaningful? If energy, light, gravity, and consciousness are a mystery, don't be surprised if you're going to get an element of this in God. Today we hear from Stanford University psychiatrist David Carrion in a conversation with John Summers Flanagan, a clinical psychologist at the University of Montana, a discussion titled The Pursuit of Wholeness, Perspectives on God, Self, and Mental Health, from the stage at the University of Montana. So my name is David Carrion, and the first thing I want to say is sort of a, a, a framing comment or, or discussion around um, what I'm actually going to be talking about. Um, so we're talking about uh, some some big topics, and there's a there's a there's a several hats I wear, several identities. Thank you. Um, there we go. Several identities that I have. So um, on the one hand, um, I'm a Christian. Um, I go to church every week, and I am more or less traditional in um, many of the core doctrines of Christianity. On the other hand. Um, I'm a psychiatrist. I've uh, learned at uh, some pretty mainstream institutions and uh, practice on a daily basis according to those, um, to those principles. So um, what I'm gonna be uh, doing to, to discuss sort of the frame for tonight is I, I wanna tell you how I personally think about my own mental health um, and how I might discuss this with a, um, with a, uh, with a patient. Um, so I don't know if you guys ever saw that this is a cool bumper sticker back in the day. Um, my, uh, my karma ran over your dogma. Has anybody ever actually seen this, this bumper sticker? Okay, yeah. So, you know, it was a thing for a while. Um, but, uh, okay, but the idea is, you know, dogma is problematic and karma's cool. And so karma's, you know, I don't know, is murdering your dog or something. But whatever the case is, it was, um, so, so this, this idea that we don't like doctrine. But I think one thing I want to say at the beginning is we all have a dogma, a worldview, or a set of things we believe. And so what I'd like to do is sort of tell you where I'm coming from, uh, my background, um, my thoughts on this. And it's helpful to know what we implicitly believe. And of course, I'm a shrink, and so that's, of course, I'd say that it's the subconscious stuff, and we got to be aware of that. But, but I think it's important, especially when we talk about worldview. Um, and it's wise to look at the unconscious biases and influences in our beliefs. So as best I can, I'll sort of tell you some of the things that, um, that, that, are, that are my own. Um, okay, so, so one thing that has always been true for me um, is I, I've got very deep democratic impulses that I, I don't like experts uh, who, having experts in charge of everything, I like the idea that everybody, especially in important matters, has something to say uh, in a conversation. And this is sort of the, the, the idea behind the uh, government type of democracy, that everybody gets to vote regardless of uh, who they are, whether, whether you're black or white or rich or poor or you know, old or young, you get, you get to vote, and everybody's vote counts hopefully the same. And, and, and the, the, the assumption there is, is pretty profound, um, but I, I, I take that to also be true, but I think the, the, the place that it's different is, um, you know, we, we like not to discriminate against people on the basis of, um, of age, um, unless they get really old, then we totally like discriminating. And what I mean is, um, when they die, when people die, we just, whatever, we don't, we don't listen to them anymore. But I like to take, um, especially uh, about these harder questions about, you know, uh, about God or about doctrine or about uh, these ideas, um, sort of try to take those opinions into account, and, and that, uh, that is sometimes called tradition. 
um, that like, it's not that tradition rules out all the time, but at least let's start the conversation with, with uh, something that most people believe. And so when I, when I think about uh, my own worldview, um, that's, what I'm gonna, uh, that's where I'm gonna come from. Um, now, the other thing I wanna say is that uh, talking about a worldview is like visiting somebody's house. And so I'm going to, uh, I'm gonna invite you into my house and uh, if you happen not to be Christian, and show you around, and show you the fireplace, and show you the, um, you know, the couch that I like to sit on, and so it's, uh, you can learn something, and then, but that's not necessarily uh, what I do in my clinical practice, and so uh, don't take some of the things I'm saying as like, oh, I'm, you know, imposing my faith on everybody who walks in my door. No, this is like, I'm going to tell you as, uh, as, a, as a Christian, sort of how things look to me on the inside. Um, and I like to, to visit, as a psychiatrist, other people's worldviews. And if they're telling me about a problem, I go into their own house, their own worldview, and work with the things that are there. You know, if they don't have a fireplace, we're not going to sit by the fireplace. We're going to do something else. So again, this is all by way of long introduction. Um, my own experience. So I grew up in a Christian home, um, uh, two wonderful parents that uh, took me to church. Um, I was a pretty intellectual kid, and I think that was a, a, a challenge at times because uh, uh, anybody who's ever been to, well, maybe not anybody, youth group wasn't exactly an intellectual activity. Um, <laughs> so um, I had a hard time sort of fitting in, but, um, but got a group of friends together in high school, and we liked to argue and debate about whether or not God existed and what the Bible said and all that, and so we did that nonstop. And at, at the end of that, and that, that sort of thing continued through college, I, I, I came to believe that, um, that Christianity seemed eminently rational to me. Um, that in the debates and, and sort of trying to come up with answers to these big questions, it seemed that Christianity had good answers. Um, and then later in my life, in the last maybe five or ten years, I've started to have more um, emotions, uh, spiritual experiences, uh, going to church and actually like crying at the music, like that, or the, the sort of worship experience. I never had that for like the first, probably until my uh, late 20s. Um, so that's, but, but now that I do, it's a, it's a wonderful thing and I enjoy it. Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, came to psychiatry, uh, uh, you know, about a decade ago, uh, maybe a little less than that, and um, have been one, have been interested in mental health and neuroscience ever since. So, okay, this is, uh, so I'm going to talk about a few doctrines, um, and especially, especially Christian doctrines, because I think there's a lot of things that we might agree on, but I'm going to sort of uh, emphasize the, uh, the differences. So, so there's this weird doctrine that, like, for, for hundreds of years, Christians were arguing about is, what is the nature of God? Um, is God singular? Is there multiple persons in the same God? But um, one common uh, summary of this is we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. Wow, what does that mean? Um, it's really complicated. But at least one thing that this, this, this is that's interesting historically but also psychologically is the entire idea of a person came out of the debates about what exact, who exactly is Jesus and how does he fit into to the Godhead and uh, how is Jesus kind of the same but kind of different. Well, there are three persons, one God. And so the, the idea that we now inherit in Western civilization of the idea of a person um, comes out of these things and that, that still applies today. Um, and even the idea of, uh, of the nature of God. You know, we like to say, or a lot of people think, God is love, but what would that have meant prior to creation? Um, love usually means an interaction between two persons. Um, but if God was a singularity, what does that mean about his nature? So, so the Christian idea that God is love is that there were, there were persons who were actually in love, connected uh, from time immemorial. Um, here's another one. Uh, so this is from the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That one Christian doctrine that is really wonderful um, uh, about is sort of this, this optimistic idea that there is a, uh, an ideal out there. Um, 
that, there's a, uh, that there is a good that we can look to, that we can aspire to, um, that we could even know. And whether it be in justice or in mathematics or in the beauty of music, that these things are founded or flow from the nature of God. And so sort of this, this um, there is a, a deep optimism in the Christian worldview um, that, that things might not be good now, but, but uh, they're, 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 they're going to get better, either in a flash or gradually, depending on your, your viewpoint. But things are, things are getting better, even if your life is really difficult. Now, one other thing um, that's also important is volition. The whole idea of the, the Garden of Eden, that humans have this ability to choose, that's also important. So, um, but, and, but I think that one of the things that psychiatry in uh, some phases has forgotten about or doesn't talk about is volition, the ability to choose. And I think that if you, if you uh, where, where volition is denied, the shame of being a bad person is exchanged for the dignity do a rabbit. That, that oftentimes we like to say, oh, well, they didn't do it. It's just their mental illness. And sometimes, sometimes that's the case. And sometimes, yes, I've, I've worked in a hospital and there are some definite cases where there is no volition, there is no choice. But I think that one thing that is, is true that is, is there are things that people can choose differently. Um, and, and giving patients that sometimes is, is deeply dignifying um, rather than saying you couldn't have done otherwise. Okay, another one is um, the ideal, that there's a difference between happiness and, and the good. And so it might be, there, on, on some views of um, psychiatry or psychology, that, that, that no matter what you do, you could be a bad person and end up happy. Um, and so here's, here's Hitler and one of his rare smiles, um, and Mother Teresa in one of her many smiles. That there, uh, but, but even if you assumed the outcome was the same, um, on a Christian worldview, we'd say that, no, you're, you're lacking something. You're lacking something really important. And maybe that something is blessedness or, or, uh, or uh, something that is separate from the, the goal of Christianity. Um, a few more doctrines. Uh, this is about the, uh, the, um, the incarnation. Um, and so the incarnation is something that's important to Christians because it dignifies the body. So we have bodies. Uh, bodies are not bad. The physical body is important um, because God had one, um, which is, a, a, of course, mind-blowing doctrine. Um, but God had one, so we can't say anything bad about the body. Um, per se, and that was pretty popular in the, you know, the time when Christianity was around, but you know, Gnosticism and a bunch of other things, and maybe even transhumanism today, says, oh, we don't need the silly body, it's just the ideas um, that are important. Um, and that, uh, that in some ways, uh, that religious practice is good for the body um, in general. Uh, here's an old study on uh, a connection between the frequency of church attendance and life expectancy. Um, that the more frequently you go to church, uh, the more the longer your life expectancy. This is a, this is one of the first studies on this subject, and later studies have confirmed this. Um, when you adjust for everything else, we know how to adjust for, including social connect, uh, connectedness. There does seem to be a uh, a net benefit to health. Um, so too with mental health. Um, this was a well-adjusted study um, of uh, the nurses' health study. Um, suicide rate seems to drop pretty precipitously as you not change doctrine but change practice. Um, that the, the people who were going to church more than weekly were quite low, um, and that there was a difference between Catholics uh, who were uh, stricter on the matter than uh, Protestants um, on uh, suicide rates. Um, also behavior. Um, this is a summary from uh, Robert Putnam and David Campbell, um, neither of whom are Christian. Um, by many different measures, uh, religiously observant Americans are better neighbors and better citizens than secular Americans. They are more generous with their time and money, especially in helping the needy, and are more active in community life. Now, um, the, the book is spectacular, um, and I, I highly recommend it, uh, very well done. Um, but then there is the reality that I see as a practitioner, a psychiatrist in the Bay Area, 
Um, Barry is kind of like a, a uh, where we receive all of the religious refugees, that people are persecuted by Christians all over the United States and flee that persecution of their families or whatever, and then they come off into the Bay Area. And so I'm seeing a lot of people who have suffered at the hands of Christians. And um, I, I just, on that note, want to say that, that is, it's something that deeply grieves me and deeply moves me and something that I, I, I take very seriously. And Christians do horrible things, and I don't want to excuse or say that that's, that's acceptable. And of course, <laughs> dealing with the consequences of it, the, the, the trauma, the PTSD, the depression, the anxiety, um, it, it's something that I, I, have to, I have to help make better or, or, or palliate. Um, so it's very difficult. Um, the other thing about this is, is sort of views of the future. Um, or what's, the, what's the ideal virtue? Um, so Aristotle might say it's magnanimity. Um, Sartre might say it's freedom, uh, Buddha might say it's awakening. Uh, for Christianity, the central virtue is love. And that is the unifying direction, the purpose, the one thing that, that you need to pursue at all, uh, at, at all costs. And the exemplar is Jesus uh, dying on the cross. Um, and the story of redemption, the story that, that we've made choices that are, uh, that are bad and that this is, we're, we're in this, this state of continuing to make these choices that are ruining our own lives, but that there's a way out and it's, um, it's through Jesus. That's something that, is, that has a lot of elements to it and is, and is profound, um, profoundly deep. Um, but then there's also the doctrine of the resurrection, that things, are, things aren't going to stay um, in this present state, that even though if you know, the, the you know, global warming or, or the depression rates or suicide or whatever other things we're worried about, those are, those are only temporary, that things are ultimately going to work out and that we're part of making that happen, at least in part, or at least as a shadow of things to come. Uh, Freud said, much will be gained if we succeed in transforming your hysterical misery into common unhappiness. <laughs> Which is, in one sense, really deep. That, that, like, that, 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 mental, that mental health isn't trying to make you anything other than undepressed, or at least that, that's an, a common aim of, of mental health. And I think there, there's some, um, like figuring out what's the meaning of life isn't necessarily what we do professionally. Um, and uh, and that, that Christians also have this idea that sometimes sometimes suffering and sometimes physical suffering and sometimes mental suffering um, is itself um, good for your soul, um, and that's that that's also challenging. But that the whole point of Christianity is not to make you undepressed uh, or not even to make you happy. Um, the point of Christianity is something different, and I think that C.S. Lewis um, captures it well uh, when he says this: "It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses." To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. The destination of humans is glory. And that's, the, that's what Christians, that's what this life is about on the Christian view, on the Christian worldview. Um, and that even though healing and health and mental health is a part of what Christians ought to do, um, that's not that's not the point. That's not what it's it's after. And so so what uh, what we try to do as psychiatrists and what we try to do as as, as Christians are sometimes aligned, um, sometimes not, um, and sometimes sometimes they work together and sometimes they 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 part ways. But um, but those are some uh, preliminary comments, and I hope to uh, hear more. And uh, thank you for, for having me out. Thanks, David. Thanks for being here, you guys. Uh, David is from Stanford, and he came to Missoula, and he's faced this weather. <laughs> he wore, he went for a walk today, and he wore three coats. 
because he didn't have any one coat that was enough. And I'm not sure if the three coats were really enough either. Uh, a little frostbite. <laughs> yeah, only a little. So, and thank you uh, for coming. Uh, it's a, it is one of those wild nights and uh, I, I made up this rhyme. It's like, I think it goes, um, the weather outside is frightful, but the discourse will be delightful. <laughs> you guys are here. Um, and thank you, Gil, for organizing. Thanks, John and Greg over there for taking care of stuff, and JJ and Kyle and other people for organizing it, and Veritas and all the clubs. So I'm John Summers Flanagan. I see some students out here. You guys, I'm so much more nervous than I am when I'm in class because I'm going to talk tonight about God. Whew. So. All right. So I took a little snapshot of my own notes just because I thought it was funny. And uh, it says I'm going to introduce myself, talk about God, talk about the self, and talk about mental health all in 10 minutes. Okay, enough of that. So this photo is a photo of my parents. And the point that I want to make is culture precedes us. I was born in a family with a mother who was Italian Catholic and with a father who was mostly Austrian Jewish. So I was born into a family with two religions. They were there before I got there. And I would guess that I don't remember making any choice to be born into that family and to having two different religions. And I would guess that you guys don't remember being born into your families or your religious communities or your cultural orientation, that those things came before us. It's not like we come with a blank slate. We come with a culture, a context, a religion, a way of thinking and living. And so as being, I used to say, half Jewish, half Catholic, um, mostly when it comes to religious issues, I'm confused. But even more than that, I know guilt. I know guilt really well. So if anybody wants to consult about that later, I'm happy to. <laughs> Um, I also think sometimes that I'm confused. Other times I like to think I'm open-minded because I've seen different perspectives in the same household and in the same neighborhood. And so it's really, re it's really refreshing and reassuring to me to see, and my slides aren't really centered here, but I'll read the quote. But when asked if he was a Hindu, Gandhi said, yes, I am. I am also a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, and a Jew. And so when I hear those kinds of things, I feel reassured, and um, most of the rest of the time, I just feel a little bit confused about what is really right and true. Um, around second grade, sort of like Mahatma Gandhi, yeah, I'm gonna compare myself to Mahatma Gandhi, which is really, you know I'm joking, right? So kind of like Mahatma Gandhi in second grade, I showed that I was a religious prodigy. Um, and the way I did it was I was going to school lessons at the synagogue, Neva Sholom, in uh, Portland, Oregon. My dad would take us, and uh, one day we had to guess a number, and I guessed the right number. I got to be the first person to bring home the Old Testament Bible story book. I, I felt blessed. I felt so incredibly fortunate. And I got home, and I was kind of on a high, you know, second grader, guessing the right number. It was 17, by the way. Um, so um, I tell, uh, I, I continue to show my prodiginess by then saying to my parents, you know what? I think that my synagogue teacher is Jewish. 
Yeah, anyway, <laughs> so I wasn't a prodigy very long, and um, so I'm not. So let's talk about God. So this is a photo from uh, Absorkey, Montana, last summer when I was irrigating the Alf Alpha, and it's sunrise, and you can see I managed to get a picture of the irrigation pipe that I've opened. See, I've sort of been demoted to just irrigating. They don't let me run the tractor anymore because one time I put diesel fuel in the radiator of the John Deere tractor. I have a reputation, and um, so now they let me water the alfalfa. It is fabulous. And you know, when I think about it, I think if God is anywhere, God is there. God is so big. God is the sunrise and the water and me and the alfalfa growing out there and so much more than that, right? God is so big, so immense. How do we, how do we possibly understand God and how do we put into words the meaning of what God is and might be. So I like this because if you saw God in a mirror, you would know that the objects in the mirror are indeed larger than they appear. It would be the whole solar system and the universe and everything. That is so immense, it's hard to get our words and our thoughts around it. Another source that I have had in my life that helps me to appreciate the bigness of God is my wife, Rita. Rita, if you don't know, has a God blog. She writes uh, a weekly God blog, nine o'clock, Sunday morning. You can read it. In Rita's God blog, sometimes God is driving a convertible with her or his hair flying. Or, and, and sometimes God is a child dying in Yemen. And sometimes God is an earthquake. And God takes all these different forms, and I find it reassuring that Rita sees God as so large and immense and in so many different things. This is a little passage from one of the things that she wrote that uh, she was saying to God, I need to give until it hurts. And instead of saying, yes, you do, God responds saying, be in your body be in my body. Open your soul. And notice where it hurts, darling. Then gently give, but give until it heals. That's all. Give until it heals. I like that so much better than giving until it hurts. And there's so much that we can do together as community to give until it heals. And so if you're interested, in non-traditional ways of thinking about a big God, Rita has a blog. I've put the, the link there. Another thing I found that I really like, um, well, actually, I don't like. One of the things that is really hard for me is when people shrink God, shrink God down. And it also bar, uh, bothers Barbara Brown Taylor, who is a pastor and a writer. And here is what she says. She basically says that the trouble starts, the problem is, many of the people in need of saving are in churches, and at least part of what they need saving from is the idea that God sees the world the same way they do. It's natural to do that, right? As humans, we cannot help but take things that are beyond our comprehension and try to reduce it 
to something that we can understand. And so I think it's natural, but not good, that we will sometimes think that we can speak for or know God and that it is reduced to our beliefs, our dogma, as David said, that somehow that's what God thinks too. There are a couple other less famous theologians here. One is um, uh, L.P. Berra, also known as Yogi. One time uh, long ago when Yogi Berra, who was a coach, baseball coach, and uh, played for the Yankees, he saw a play at second base he really didn't like. He ran out onto the field. He started yelling at the ump, and the ump says, hey, hey, Yogi, man, calm down. I was like a few feet away, and you were like over there in the dugout. How could you think that you could see it better than I could? To which Yogi got even more angry and said, listen, ump, I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't believed it. So often our beliefs will shape the things we see and the attitude we have toward other people. And then P. Simon and A. Garfunkel in somewhere around 1969, that's their academic reference, said, a man hears, oh, they sang actually, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. I think those are the dangers of shrinking God and shrinking everything into our small beliefs. But maybe my favorite version of this lesson is from the Sufi philosopher, uh, 14th century Sufi poet. Sufism is a way of understanding or approaching the understanding of Islam. And he wrote a poem, I have a thousand brilliant lies for the question, what is God? If you think that the truth can be known from words, if you think that the sun and the ocean can pass through that tiny opening called the mouth, oh, someone should start laughing. Someone should start wildly laughing now. I love that. How can we reduce it all down to the words that we say? It is so much more, so much more immense than that. So this is a cartoon. This is one of Rita's favorite cartoons. You can see God in God's kitchen saying, something tells me this thing's only half-baked, and it's the earth. The best part is he's made it out of earthquake. Save 50 cents. So God saved 50 cents, made earth. It's only half-baked. That's us. We're only half-baked. Now, the good thing is maybe God invented evolution. And maybe God invented evolution so that we could continue to bake. And maybe finally we will be done uh, and maybe not half-baked anymore. So. so let's talk about the self. The self is really almost as complicated as God. Not quite. Not as big. It's smaller. We know that the self begins with self-reflection. I have to know I am me. I am separate. I have my thoughts. And they're separate from yours. And so self-reflection, as important as it is, can get overdone, right? And one of the ways that we know it can get overdone is the fable or the myth of Narcissus who looked at himself a little too long and then fell in the lake and drowned. And so we can get preoccupied with the self in ways that are destructive and unhealthy, right? And so I would say one of the most important things I want to say about the self is really something Adlerian. And I know some people in the room know what I, I'm saying when I say Adlerian, right? You know what I'm saying? Alfred Adler, famous psychologist, came up 
with this concept called Gemeinschaftgefühl. Okay? Everybody say it with me. Gemeinschaftgefühl. Nice. You guys, are, that's great. It's a German word. It means social interests. It means balancing. It means, and he thought it was a great therapeutic goal that we shouldn't just do therapy for ourselves, but we should also do therapy. And Gemeinschaftgefühl is really about compassion, interest in community and making the community better. It's about empathy. It's about what he called social interest. And that complements self-interest. And we need that balance. And Adler, who sometimes referred to himself as an atheist and sometimes as a Christian and sometimes as a Jew, also said, the best philosophy of all is love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, that's a tricky thing, right? It also implies that you would love yourself, which is an important place to start, too. And so you can see that self-reflection is really something we can't and shouldn't talk about too much unless we also talk about other reflection, about what we are thinking of and feeling toward and how we're helping other people. So this is a nice cartoon. You can see here, if you can't see it, I can read it. Because I, I know it says the guy who's leaving church is saying to his, his wife or partner, how can I love my enemies when I don't even like my friends, right? How can I love my enemies when I don't even like myself, right? And all those things are woven together, and we need to be balanced in those areas. Last, a few words on mental health. Uh, I have there no more stigma. Uh, there are a lot of different ways I've tried in my life to figure out how to get rid of stigma, and I can't figure out how to get rid of it. I worry sometimes, and I know this is an extreme and radical position. I'm going to say it anyway, even though I know it's kind of embarrassing to be so radical. But I no longer use the term mental illness. Any, I just don't use it because I feel like it's so stigmatizing, and we can't pull the stigma out of it, even though people try. So instead, I just say to people, I don't, I don't use the word mental illness unless I'm explaining why I don't use the word mental illness, which I can tell you more about later if you want. But, um, and I, yeah, I, I'm trying to do that in a way to be just destigmatizing. I'm going to tell this story a little later. It's about the Dalai Lama and a time when Rita and I got to listen to him at Emory University. And he had some really interesting things to say about biopsychosocial. And, uh, and so I hope we can talk about that a little bit later. But I realize we need to, I need to stop here in a moment. So let me just say about balance. For me, mental health is a lot about balance. It's about balance, as I said before, between self-interest and other interests or social interests. It's about the balance between superiority and inferiority. If we get too far on either extreme, we get ourselves in trouble, right? We become less effective. It's about balancing the courage to face the tasks of life, but also balancing that with encouraging others to face the task of life because we're not in this alone. We need to encourage other people. It's about movement. The body and the mind is inseparable. It's about movement, but it's also about meditation and stillness. It's about being able to do both. It's about solving problems. But you know, sometimes the problems aren't very solvable. And so it's also about engaging in mindful acceptance because there are times when you can't and it's too frustrating and difficult to keep trying to solve a problem that seems insolvable. We sometimes need to remind ourselves of our values. We need to have love written on our hearts. We need to know where we stand and to be able to remember our values because in the midst of all that happens in the world, it's hard sometimes to remember them and to act on them. 
So um, just kind of thinking about the perspectives on mental health that you guys have already talked about um, and how you think that one might form a personal vision of wholeness. Um, keeping that in mind, would you please summarize what factors of mental health your research or your practice or your personal insight emphasizes um, and, and how it does so? I just finished talking a lot. <laughs> okay, so there's a lot of different ways to think about like different factors and, and you know sometimes it's useful to lump them and sometimes it's useful to split them. Um, what we use in, in my clinic, we want people to flourish uh, brain, body, and soul. Um, and, and okay, so I, I, I know the brain is a part of the body. It's like not like I, I did anatomy and that was certainly it's, it's part. But then, okay, what is the soul? Ah, oh, geez, that's a hard one too. So, but, but there may be different levels of analysis. Um, so I, one thing that helps people with depression is uh, encouraging them to go for walks or having walking groups. And that's like, yeah, I mean, whatever it is that led you to be depressed, it, it does, that, that seems too simple on one level, but on the other level, it's like, wow, there is, that depression is a whole body experience. There's differences in, your, um, in the, the cortisol in your body, there's differences in your microbiome, there's differences all over the place. And so, yeah, so it's, it's plausible that a physical intervention that affects below the neck is gonna do something. Um, okay, so body is one, um, brain is another, and you know, so I, I do neurostimulation. So that might be another way that we can uh, treat people is by, by that or, or medications, those are often helpful. Um, but then also, um, but then there's somewhere between brain and soul at sort of higher or more complex levels of organization. There is there are these higher things of, of therapy or you know and even within therapy there's like uh, more profound or deep sorts of things in the uh, the psychodynamic side and there's more like well let's just solve your problems right now kind of side and those are all different levels of um, of ways we can approach treatment but then also ways we could think about um, factors that um, that would contribute to um, mental health or or um, lack thereof so you know some, having something terrible happen to a family member. Um, that's part of you too, in some sense, uh, maybe at the soul level, um, having something, you know, getting hit in the head, that's going to, that's going to affect your brain. So there's, um, when we, when we talk about wholeness, there's, there's just many different, uh, I mean, everything, everything affects everything else. And again, so that's like the, but that's not useful. Uh, everything isn't really helpful. Uh, what are some concrete ways that we can actually get better or, or prevent ourselves from getting worse? Those are the, those are the questions. Could you? I'm sorry, could you quickly define um, how, how you define soul in your practice and not in your personal view? So in practice, so soul is just a translation of the word psyche. Um, so psyche iatros is soul doctor on some level. Um, and, and okay, so for a long time that just meant you give medicine to people and that's all. Um, but ideally it's something higher, it's something um, more complex. Um, so I, in, in the soul, sort of in my, with my psychiatrist hat on, I would say things like um, your ideas, your beliefs, your cognitions, um, those go under that heading in that, uh, in that practice. Um, theologically, philosophically, I can, I can talk for another 45 hours about what a soul is and is it different from a spirit and what happens after death, and maybe we'll get into that later, but, um, um, but uh, it's a great question. Yeah, and so I'm hearing you talk about some of the components of mental health, right? The you know, body, brain, soul. And when I think about those things, <clears throat> I mean, I think about components of mental health too, and so it overlaps a bit. Um, I think about 
the issue of balance like I had on the slide, but you know, physical wellness and health, and we know that the gut and other kinds of physical things really affect our, our emotional and our psychological functioning. And so I think the body and physical, I think about the mind and mental, psychological health and well-being. I think about social well-being that, um, in fact, that that can be central and really central in terms of the beginning of life. We are born into a social environment and the, the health and it, the healthy interactions we experience there and then, so important to mental well-being. Um, I think about um, emotions and emotional well-being, and we sometimes think about talking psychology and psychiatry about emotional dysregulation, right? Uh, or affect dysregulation, and certainly being able to be balanced and expressive of our emotions, but at the same time manage and control them when we can and should, right? That's important. And sometimes we can over control them, and I think that happens with a lot of males in sort of the stereotypical male style in our society. And then, of course, the spiritual, cultural, other kinds of parts of mental health, too, that can be really, um, you know, we can be kind of disturbed in the spiritual realm, right? There can be an absence of that, but also some people will have beliefs that are kind of twisted. And to me, you know, spirituality and religiousness um, is healthy when it fosters an acceptance and non-judgmentalness, uh, an honoring of other people. Uh, but when it's used to hurt other people and to judge other people, to me that's maybe a less healthy spirituality. That that makes sense. And so I think in each of those domains that you can be, you know, psychologically healthy, um, but spiritually not healthy, and you could be emotionally healthy, but um, but physically unhealthy, but they're all related, right? Yeah. They're all. Yeah. yeah no, and, and I think that's that, that whether it's it's three or six or fourteen, um, it, that the 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 idea is somewhere between two and forty five aspects of mental wellness are a good yeah a good place to talk about. But yeah, I, I like that. I like that breakdown. Well, and I think one of the things that the Gestalt psychology yeah. people talk about is that we can understand the whole better by breaking it down to, into its parts. And so the purpose of thinking about body, brain, or mind, and soul is not to separate them. It's to break them apart to try to understand them better so you can put them together in, at a higher level of integration, I think. And for me, that's also part of mental well-being or mental health. Yeah, no, agreed. So I'm just wondering, one thing that we're talking about for the rest of this week is spiritual health and how spiritual health is incorporated into mental health and how it is kind of part of that whole paradigm, that 2 or 45. And I was wondering if you might um, try to venture to answer what spiritual health means to you, not necessarily in a sterile way or as, you know, orthodox religious way, but kind of what you might say in a textbook, what you might say to a class as someone who knows nothing about what spiritual health means at all. So I'm, I'm going to quote. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to quote uh, Dr. David Carrion here, and 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 really that uh, spiritual health, spiritual the meaning, the center is love, right? That it's that that, and when you think of love, it is kind of like I said before. It it can be aimed toward yourself, it can be aimed toward others, and hopefully it's aimed toward both and all, and that we 
try our best, knowing that we will fall short, to be loving beings. And uh, I think that, for me, speaks a lot to spiritual health. I know that's not maybe that I'm, I'm just interested in your your reaction to that. Well, yeah, I think uh, you see, it's it's a hard question to. I think that's the the the, the question where the like what would a what what within with you kind of got to go to a person's um, worldview what what a healthy um, uh, islamic practice would be might be different than a healthy christian practice might be different than a healthy buddhist practice um, and, and i suppose if we're if we're uh, constraining it to be how could i help somebody have the best mental health from a spiritual perspective or within their own spiritual perspective um, I, I'd say there's there's a few things that come to mind, and, and one is sort of the, the the aspects of that religion which contribute to other things that we even secularly know to be good for you. So, for example, um, a part of Christianity is regular religious attendance. That's commonly encouraged, and so when you go to church, you don't just go to church. You also talk to people. You might go to a potluck now and then, um, you know, things like that. And so you you actually get to um, to build friendships and friendships and relationships and connectedness, that itself is independently good for mental health. But um, as some of these slides also uh, showed, it does seem like there is some aspect where, where the, the churchiness itself is good for your mental health uh, if you happen to be of that, um, of that worldview. Um, and unfortunately, it, there's not much research outside of the Christian experience, partly because of the, it being in the United States and having lots of money for medical research in the United States and all sorts of other things that don't have to do with the fact that you know the, the Islamic practice hasn't been tested as well. Um, but I'd say that, uh, yeah, so there's things that you do at church that are good for you um, or in, in practice that are good for you. Uh, mindfulness practice has been shown to be helpful. Um, and so, you know, if that's a part of your Buddhist practice or perhaps your Christian practice, whatever your practice, yeah, like not checking your, you know, not not uh, sort of having a fear of missing out on your Facebook feed, that's probably praying or meditating or whatever is probably going to be better than that. Um, but, but healthy spirituality is a, is a hard question because also it gets into these issues of, you know, sometimes healthy spirituality in Christianity is to experience a dark night of the soul where you might have the physiological symptoms of depression. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not necessarily something that you want to like medicate away. Um, but that, that's a, but, but that's a, that's a hard question. Um, so then, then you'd have to put a you know religious hat on to answer that question. Yeah. My reaction to what you're saying is partly, uh, so what's meaningful and the different doctrines will be more or less meaningful to different people traditions and doctrines, some people uh, avoid them, right? And they find them aversive. Other people find them very meaningful and therefore in some ways it becomes, I think, healthy, good for the mental health be, to be doing something meaningful. And if, another reaction I had as I was listening is about participation in church, which to me, um, you know, I know that when Rita and I go to church, we probably go for two different reasons. And I go for the interpersonal, and she goes more for the spiritual, um, which probably means that I want to, I'm, I'm more reluctant to go, but once I get there, I want to stay longer. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so the, for me, that fits a little bit with the Adlerian idea. There's this Adlerian idea that the, the two things that keep us all 
from misbehaving or from behaving in problematic ways are to feel that we belong. And obviously, I think church attendance, it really helps with that. And the other part is to feel like we're doing something useful. And I think that's really something that people do at churches. They do useful, helpful, kind things. They do missions together. They, you know, they gather together and they feel like they're important to one another. They belong and they're doing important work together. And it's both of those things are meaningful. So uh, I think that can cut across the different religions. Yeah, and and I guess I, I it brings up the I, I'm glad you talked about um, meaning because I think that's that's another um, huge thing that we what well, we need. Um, there there's a, uh, another book, um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and, and just his his observations from a um, you know, from the Holocaust of seeing people who were able to survive versus not. It just this, that there's this deep fundamental need for human meaning, and then later studies showing that if you had a sense of meaning and if, uh, as an older adult, then you would live longer than people who didn't say that they felt what they did mattered. Yeah. Um, and, and again, on this, like, it's astonishing. I mean, maybe on some level it shouldn't be, but, you know, it's astonishing that, like, the thought, what I do matters, is going to have you have, make you have a heart attack? Like, I, yeah, I guess on some level it, it get cancer? Like, it, it's just all-cause mortality. So it's like, from one level... I, we haven't really worked out the mechanism for how that can happen, but but it, the 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 observation again and again and again is like, yeah, this is these are real effects that that matter, um, and maybe we should stop being surprised by them. But I, I still find myself being surprised when it's like, yeah, you know, not having meaning can cause us heart attacks or whatever. So, I, so I think that the the question, though, I think that we both nationally and also. Um, you know, locally and, and, and everywhere are facing is like, what is our story? Um, and I think that, you know, if you, if you go to church, then, you know, the story is that you're part of this, you know, this this uh, group of people that's trying to bring love and light into the world, and, you know, that, that ultimately it's going to be victorious and everything's going to work out and, and you get to be a part of that, that things getting better and better process. Um, and and that, that's, that's exciting. Um, and that's a story. And that's maybe part of the, you know, mechanism of how going to church helps. But but I, I guess um, what, what's been your experience on the on the, the side of, of helping people who don't have that sense of, of ultimate meaning or cosmic meaning, and maybe uh, agnostics or atheists or um, nihilists? Um, how 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 do you approach them with with those meaning questions? Yeah, I mean, I, I when you said nihilist, I thought of you know Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, his philosophy of I am my choices, right? That that's who I am. So you were, I was starting to think about identity as you were talking, um, and how to deal with those people in kind of a concrete way. Um, I feel like that they might be nihilists, but they do have things that are meaningful, and they do make choices. And by helping them focus on even the small choices that they make that improve their psychological state or their emotional state or their physical state, and by really focusing on those small, concrete behaviors that, and, and helping them track those and notice those, I think it's, there's a chance to grow some meaning. Yeah, I, that, that's 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 well put. I, I've I've had a, a similar experience, sort of narrowing it down. If the cosmic stuff doesn't matter, yeah. then well, you know, it was meaningful to help the person across the street or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
there's a funny there's a funny social psych uh, finding. It's, uh, it's they say happy people are helpful people, right? But then it turns out that uh, research shows that the opposite is true too. When you help someone, it makes you more happy. And so I think finding those little ways, you know, you hold the door for somebody, you help shovel the walk on a day like today for your neighbor who's older. Those, just doing those things can feel good to a nihilist as well as a Christian. Now that we're talking about different human identities, um, let's move on to the second theme, which is self. Uh, and I, I would like to ask what fundamentally to you is a, is a human person? And how does your understanding of what a human person is guide or shape how you approach mental health questions? Well, I think that there's two ways I could answer the question and maybe, maybe sort of what are humans, you know, what is a human person? So I think there's a, there's one perspective of the sort of different components because there's sort of say, well, you know, humans have two feet and two hands and okay, that's part of the person, but then you could, you know, then you might lose a hand or you might lose a foot and then you're still a person, right? That, that there's something inherently, um, and this is something that at least in, in the, the, the that, that we've held for a long time in the West, um, I'm sure, and I'm less familiar with Eastern philosophy, so I won't speak for, um, not my culture, um, but this idea of, of um, that, that there is this inherent there, there's this inherent dignity in a human being just for being a human being, um, and that that's fundamental. And, and then there's certain, um, and but then there's also certain things that humans can do that are pretty unique or pretty special. And I, I'd put near the top of the list, if not at the top of the list, the ability to choose, the ability to have volition, um, and connected to that, the ability to think um, rationally or reasonably, um, and you know, as part of that, whether it be about, you know, that was a, that was an excellent concert or symphony, or that was a beautiful painting, or whether that's, you know, the Euler's Law, or, you know, discovering something in math, or, or you know, rediscovering that, wow, you know, all, all people really are equal, and we, we should probably have laws to reflect that. I mean, those are all um, fundamental, humans doing what humans do best, and I think at the, at the core of that is, is love, so, um, so yeah, so so uh, the ability to reason and the ability to um, to sort of know what the good is or know what truth is, and then the ability to do it, this this um, this will or this volition or this ability to do that, and and you do that long enough, the, the end of that, the telos of that is is love or agape. Would you define well, agape, please, for those who don't? Um, that's a really great question. That's a long conversation. Uh, the short of it is okay. So so there there, there was this. In early Christianity, there was this difficulty defining what this central virtue was. So Paul kind of picked a Greek word, kind of at random, that didn't have much meaning, and then like poured all of this meaning into it. And so it becomes this very central virtue for Christianity that's that's different than uh, affection, like I am, you know, you, how you feel towards puppies or how you feel when you get a hug. Like there's that. That's that's one kind. There's there's like friendship and like buddies and working together towards a common pursuit. That's you know that's that's philia in Greek, and the first one was uh, storge, I think, and then the third is. Um, is eros when you're like really in you know uh, love with somebody and have this sort of um, passionate wanting to connect with that one other person? Um, there's that, but then there's this other thing that unifies all of those all of those things 
um, emerge or develop into, which is this, um, this, this, this desire for the other's good, this, this willing to lay down your life or sacrifice yourself or, or desire their good over your own good. Um, that, that is maybe the core of, um, of, of uh, this Christian conception of love, which isn't identical to, but is, is probably pretty similar to what most people mean by, um, by love. And that is the in the Christian idea, um, how we view how God sees His children, right? Right. So, so this is this is all coming from, uh, and the origin of this is uh, is God. That the 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 best virtue, the the most the, the source of all goodness is God. And so, the extent to which we love is the is is how is because God has loved us, and that this is something that is a capacity created in us by God. So Rita and I used to have chickens. <laughs> I, you know, I felt like things were getting really philosophical. So we used to have chickens, and this is related. So we used to have chickens, and the chickens, you know, if you threw a weed in that they didn't like into the pen, they just completely ignored you. But if you threw a dandelion, they If you threw a worm, and it seemed like they're making choices, right? Sort of, and... But my sense is that they weren't really reflective choices. They were reflexive choices, right? They were instinctual choices. And I think one of the things that makes people human, like you said, is the ability to make choices, but not just choices that are survival-oriented, but choices to not be survival-oriented, to sacrifice yourself to somebody else or somebody else, uh, a, a sort of a contemplative choice to, to meditate. I mean, everybody here, you guys all made choices to be here tonight. Somehow you got here. And that's a kind of a cascading domino effect of choices, of conscious choices. Maybe you came because you heard there would be treats, or maybe you came because you had a friend coming. But so, but you evaluated and reflected on your options. Maybe there wasn't a good movie tonight. I don't know. The State of the Union is tomorrow night. Maybe... Anyway, so, so you know what I'm, what I'm saying? I'm thinking that one of the things that makes us distinctly human is not just making choices, but making these sort of reasoned, reflective choices that are not always self-serving, but can be other-serving as well. And that goes back to the agape, I think. So I never really thought I was going to talk about our chickens. It's not part of the plan. Wasn't uh, queued up for just this moment. No. So so another thought I have about identity, and I think identity is related to what we're talking about right now. And identity is, uh, gosh, there's a, you know, you probably know Irvin Yalom. He's he's one of your neighbors Mm -hmm. in Palo Alto. Um, He's a famous existential psychotherapist. And he used to do this, this thing where he would ask people the same question 10 times, and it was, what do you want, right? To get it to your existential wanting. Um, and some, in some classes, I used to change it and so that it would focus on identity. And I would have people ask each other 10 times. And I would say, David, who are you, <laughs> right? And then I'm writing it down. You, know, you, say, you say, what would you say? Oh, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. And I would repeat that back, I'd say, and then the only rule here is you can't give the same answer twice, right? So, David, who are you? Well, that is my fundamental identity. I want to give that answer again. <laughs> you got it, number one. You got it, number one. Yeah. So, so 
you see, you kind of go down to layers, and people have multiple identities, right? Yeah. You might say that I, you know, I'm a psychiatrist at some point because our roles oftentimes will capture a piece of our identity. Um, and you might say I'm a man, right? And what I found in identity, you know, there's so many things, and now we talk about identity politics, but you know, we have multiple identities, and we talk about intersectionalities, right? We have intersectionalities and identities of race and gender and sexualities. And, uh, and, and interestingly, when I've done this, almost never do the guys say, I am a man, it comes up, if it comes up much down the list. But the women will say, I am a woman, pretty, or somebody who is um, diverse sexuality might say, I am a queer, really high on the list. Or somebody racially diverse, not a you know, dominant cultural white person, would, would say, I'm a Native American, right? As really high on the list, which is to me interesting in terms of the salience of different parts of the identity. Um, so, It seems like that um, almost alludes to conflict bringing out someone's identity, how they identi identify themselves. Um, and I think a, a great follow-up question to that would be, what do you think are the key issues of personal identity formation in college students? What do you see? Well, there's so many, multiple factors. And I'd say one of them is related to sort of feeling misunderstood. And when people feel misunderstood in some way, that often becomes, well, wait a minute. I am, you know, you don't get me. I'm, I'm a gay person, you know, and, and that's, that's who I am. And I, I want you to be interested in that and to learn something about that, right? And so those, those places where we're misunderstood, I think, can be really central to sort of the top part of that fluctuating identity. But the identity will fluctuate. Your major that you choose in college is going to push you in a direction for identity, business, advertising going to push you in terms of an identity and I, with identity comes values and specific behaviors and it builds these uh, tendencies in us to behave in certain ways. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I said a lot. <laughs> well, I'll uh, aspire to the same. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think, um, I, but I think that's exactly right, that, that the, the College is often the first time that you're really on your own, that you've been living under your parents' roof for, uh, you know, for your whole life, and now you're not being supervised. And so you, you, you know, your autonomy is being tested. Um, and, you know, and then even, even, fun, even like meta questions of identity, um, how much is that even something I can control? Um, and that's something that's been uh, uh, concerning to me. Um, I, I, there was a study from uh, 1960 to 2000, the idea of, you know, is, is my future fate under my own power or is it just going to be determined by factors external to me uh, called a locus of control? Um, there's been a shift towards more in college students, um, more and more feelings that the world around me determines my fate, that, um, that, that the external locus of control by the standard measure has gone up 25% over 40 years, um, which is not small. And that, that, that affects how you can't even think about your identity, that, 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 that perhaps if we ask that question, that uh, factors external to me um, might be higher on the list now than things that I've chosen or things that I, I, I like or things that I'm, um, I, have, I have volition to change. Um, but then, you know, but, but I like what you said about the, um, you know, sort of career vocation because that's also huge because, you know, it, 
am I going to am I going to have the career of my father? Um, am I going to have the religion of my mother? Am I going to you know drink as much as my parents want me to, um, <laughs> or as little, <laughs> or as little, or as little? <laughs> um, so you've got you've got to make all these decisions, and, and it's sort of this this um, terribly exciting, um, but also uh, you know hugely important time of, of making the, the first step or the first draft of your own independent. Uh, life plan or your own independent identity um, as you're as you're stepping out from um, from uh, from your parents. So it, it's a identity formation is, is just critically important. Yeah. So just one quick comment, and because I know our time's almost over. But so I loved what you said when I asked you, "Who are you?" Mm-hmm. And I'm a child of God, mm-hmm. and I love that. Mm-hmm. And it, you know that was central to you. And what I love about that is I bet that you think everybody else out here is also a child of God, right? And so it's this universal way of thinking of and valuing everybody. I think that's pretty cool. Thank you. What would be your number one? I'm a man. Moving on. <laughs> Thank you. So I just want one of them want to say, I know that um, I loved what the president had to say, and I know Mike Frost and Rick Curtis from Curry Health are right here, and maybe Linda too. You guys, these, if you're college students here, they're Curry Health, they're counseling services, and in fact, University of Montana wants to support your mental health and well-being. And I hope not only do you know that they want to do that, but that your your friends want to do that too. So for the last and third theme, and just to uh, remind the audience, we will have a Q and R after this. Um, what? So, kind of contemplating your perspectives on God and how one forms a personal vision of wholeness. Again, do you think that belief in God is necessary for human flourishing? Why or why not? It's a big one. So when you say human flourishing, mm-hmm. you mean like humanity flourishing or a human flourishing? Um, I would lean towards a human flourishing, but you could take it either way. I'd say that there's, I think on the, the, the level at which, like with a secular hat on, I'd say, no, I think there's plenty of atheists and agnostics who are plenty happy um, that that on every sort of um, measure that you could you could go I mean it, it looks like the core you know there's there's some correlations some connection that maybe church attendance is good for you but but sure that's not like a lock solid thing um, I, I do think the the, the questions uh, the, the answer to flourishing is are we going to include like afterlife or uh, eternal life or some sort of state following death in that case then certainly um, but without that I, I, and I, I do think there are influences for the positive that belief in God and particularly religious practice have for mental health, um, but I don't think that it's required. You know, I, I don't think so either. I think it can help. I'm, I'm reminded of a book that my friend Gary Hawk, who's right here in the front row, suggested to me titled uh, The Gospel According to Jesus. And I remember reading in there about how the kingdom of heaven is within. And I don't, and I, and I know the guy who wrote it's a Buddhist, which 
you know, is important, I guess, to know. But it's the issue of that feels more universal than needing to have a specific belief in God. Um, that there are maybe other paths that are meaningful and even spiritual without necessarily believing in a creator. Sure. Can I ask uh, about your view on God, or, or, or maybe more generally, do you think that a view on God has implications for um, ethics or values or, um, or virtues? You know, I definitely think it helps. I mean, I think people can have secular ethical perspectives that are really solid and very respectable. But I do think it helps that the, the feeling of there being a spiritual force underlying ethics and morals can give it more passion, maybe, and more, um, hopefully, more compassionate application, too. And I guess I ask in the, the, the like maybe within if we look at all theists and say uh, you believe in God um, and I also believe in God, um, but I'm pretty sure that God sent His Son Jesus to die for us on the cross. And I, I don't know what you would say about that particular historical event um, or the nature of Jesus as being yeah. you know God in the flesh. But would um, well I guess what would whether or not that happened I think changes the character of of God um, and what might a central virtue, what the central virtue might be. Um, would you agree? You know, we're getting into the territory where I'm a little more confused, you know, <laughs> and I mean, I think, uh, I feel like that the doctrine of religion is kind of a paradox and that it's super informative, but also maybe not necessary, and that um, I'm, I'm not convinced that my father's perspective of Jesus being just a guy, or my mother's perspective of Jesus having died on the cross to um, forgive our sins. I'm not, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And and my hope, and because I feel like it's, again, too massive and beyond me to know, my hope is that it doesn't matter to God whether I know that or not. And that faith is more that God is very accepting and gives us lots of grace with regard to the specifics of our religious beliefs. That's what I hope is true. Yeah, and I guess I... I I think that it seems to me that whatever, whether it's God is accepting, that the nature of God is accepting regardless of belief, um, or that, that the, the, the God doesn't care so much about the, God has a nature such that he doesn't, he, she, they, doesn't care so much about the doctrinal specifics versus a God who did this particular thing. It, it, it sort of, in my mind, would change with the, the we, we both agree, we both like the word love. I think we both agree that that's a great word. Um, <laughs> we both love the word love. We love it. It's such a great word. Yeah. But it seems like it would change the character of the word, um, that if the central event of history was this particular 
act of sacrificial love or not. That, that matters yeah. to sort of yeah. what, what, the, what love really is, what this, the character of this God is, like sort yeah. of accepting regardless, doesn't really care what you believe about him versus wants to build relationship with you via the sacrificial act. Yeah. Th those are different persons or God pictures. And I think it definitely changes it for you you know, I mean, I, I, and I hear that, but I'm not sure it changes it for me. You know, I just, I, you know, that is part of my um, less certain part of my faith. Okay, so, so it, that's interesting. So, so it's not um, that whether or not, but I, I guess let's get back to the, the, the question of, of what is love in, in the sacrificial sense, the, um, the, um, the poem. Uh, give till it hurts versus uh, give till it heals. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, that, that the the where, where is the centrality of that giving till it hurts and till it kills you um, versus the healing? I, I guess say more about uh, say more about that that poem and how you, how you see it. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Uh, giving the, the conscious human interpretation of giving till it hurts, the way most of us would think about it, would think about that giving would necessarily require some painful self-sacrifice. But if we focus on the other, that instead of focusing on ourselves, that giving until it heals is something that doesn't bring us pain, even though maybe we are sacrificing things, but it focuses on the healing that we're providing with the gifts as opposed to the pain that we're experiencing from giving. Okay. Yeah, and, and you know, I guess the, the, the agreement on, um, so it sounds like we agree on doing nice things that are not costly um, or doing good things that you feel, you, you feel, you can get into the empathetic position of the other and sort of it feels good as you're doing it. Yeah. Um, I, think give, I think doing nice things that are costly is good too. But what if it doesn't heal? I don't think we can know in advance whether what we do is healing or not. And so in some ways the spirit of giving is something that's useful or uh, it's energy in the right direction you know yeah. does that make sense yeah 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 I mean I don't know that we know in advance I mean I know from having done therapy with people for a long time that uh, I'm not sure I mean I think I helped more than I didn't and I think in some cases I helped a lot but I'm sure in some cases my even my efforts to help in that domain were not successful. And I, I'm never sure when I say something in advance that, ah, this is gonna definitely help this person. Yeah. One time I, I had my best 50 minute hour ever. It was the best, I wished it had been video recorded. I think I was like a star. And then at the end, the guy just used the F word to describe what the session was like for him. I'm not gonna say which F word, but you can imagine. 
funky. Fun. <laughs> fun. It was, a, that fun was the funnest hour I've ever had. Right. So, so I think our intention and yeah. even our expertise yeah. and skill can sometimes just not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So we've covered a very wide variety of topics in this yeah. session, and I feel I, like David's trying to get me to the, theologically be sort of coherent. <laughs> <laughs> and I impose that like on I'm somebody resisting. else. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of tension. Um, but I think it would be the perfect time to start the Q&R. Yeah. Are you guys are okay with that? Awesome. So this question is for both of you. So how do you, what toll do you think uh, a belief in a chance for damnation for yourself, uh, not just for yourself, but for your friends, your family, com your community, plays on your mental health? So damnation as in like, Uh, so the question was, uh, what role does uh, belief in damnation have for your mental health, uh, either of your own damnation or of others? Right. Um, yeah, just believe in, believing in a hell, whether yeah. it's for yourself or not, do you think that plays a positive or negative role in mental health? That's a great question. Um, I think uh, I'd say it's, it would be difficult, speaking as a scientist, it, it would be difficult to disentangle that from uh, other aspects of theology. So I, I'm actually, whenever people ask me a question like that, it's like, has there an experiment been done that would answer that question? Um, <laughs> I, but it would be difficult because of the correlation of other things. Now, that being said, I have had, um, I have had patients where this is a huge issue um, of like, I am afraid of damnation, and that's like a major fear um, and a thing that that you know that that's that's a that has to be worked through or processed um, so you know and, and so I'd say that uh, the and that depending on the theology I'd say that there are certain theologies that do put fear of hell in everybody's heart where that's something that you're like thinking about all the time I don't think that's so good, and I mean, I would argue with my Christian hat on that I don't think that I would agree with that theology. Um, that if you're if you're worrying about hell all the time, that doesn't sound like what, what Jesus was talking about or what Paul was talking about. I mean, certainly there's times that that's discussed, but um, so it, but I think that on the whole, here's here's an answer. On the whole, I'd say that that doctrine, when plugged into other doctrines, is what the data shows. That that's generally <laughs> the correlation would be for the better um, belief in hell in the United States at least, that people who believe in hell are the people who go to church, are the people who have better mental health, um, though it can, like many things, be perverted and, and be, uh, be bad. So just a couple of quick responses. One is that we know fear is a motivating factor, right? Being afraid of something will motivate us to avoid it or to deal with it in some kind of constructive way. We also know that fear uh, can make us kind of neurotic and not be very healthy for us. So I think it's a double-edged sword and that certainly having some respectful fear of the afterlife turning out in a positive way um, or avoiding the negative outcome, I think that can be a positive motivator, but I think it can also just sort of like punishment in terms of using too much punishment with pets or with children or with adults can make them quite neurotic. And I think the fear of the punishment of hell can make people be quite neurotic. So, and that's, that would not be a good outcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm gonna read off my notes here. 
Um, so this question is more directed for Dr. Summers Flanagan, but I wouldn't mind if you both answered. So I think that if you could sum up all the world's problems in one word, it would be conflict. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. So conflict between wants and needs and nations and religions, et cetera. So Dr. Summers Flanagan, you mentioned love as being of high value, perhaps the highest value. So it seems that love, though, is viewed differently based on many factors. For example, some parents may believe that corporal punishment is an expression of love. Other parents may believe that corporal punishment is hateful. So my question is, if love is defined as creating the highest good for yourself and others, then how do you determine love is actually the ultimate value if so many people differ on how love should be expressed? Could you repeat the last part of your question? Sure. That's the kind of question I just like to answer with yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was a little wordy. Um, okay, so if love is defined as creating the highest good for yourself and for others, then how do you determine love is actually the ultimate value if so many people differ on how love should be expressed? I find what you said to be very true with regard to my experience as well, uh, regarding the many different ways that people try to define and express love. And I think that's a problem, <laughs> right? It is a problem. Um, I'm not sure if I would agree that conflict is, I don't know how you described it, but I would say that there are times when conflict uh, grows people and it stimulates new thinking. And I'm aware that there's a famous conflict management author in the front row who could speak much more about that, Joyce Hawker. And she's written a book called Conflict Resolution in its ninth edition. Anyway. 11th, 10th. So conflict can be really growthful. Love can be really growthful. And would we always agree on the definition of conflict? Probably not. We wouldn't agree on the definition of love either. But I do think movement in the direction of more loving relationships, and, um, and maybe that's part of that half-baked evolution that we need to work on, that we need to, as a world, get clearer on what is loving and what maybe is less loving. So I don't know that I answered your question. I'd really like to hear what you have to say. <laughs> well, I think this gets to the, so, so two things. One, I'd say that the, the, this might be, love is a, we all like this, we all like this word. And I, I think that this is a, maybe, maybe checking our cultural um, biases here as well. I, I don't know that everybody would agree that love is the ultimate virtue or value. Um, that that I, I again, this is this is not my worldview, but I, I imagine that the idea of love as central to say Buddhism would something like like cessation of craving might be central to Buddhism, and we might say, oh well, that's just love. It's like well, no, that Buddhism seems to be saying something different and emphasizing a different set of practices than Christianity, um, and sort of zooming out and saying that, that like, what, what, what do we mean by we want everybody to be more loving? Um, and 
and, and as, a, as a Christian who thinks that is the, the central virtue, then yes, of course, I, I think everybody should be more loving. Um, but also trying to understand, you know, what do we have to learn from, um, from Buddha and this idea of cessation? What, what, what can we learn from trying to cut off those desires? Um, and, and what, you know, there, there, there's depth there that might allow me and my own worldview to learn, well, geez, if I, if I meditate, I'm realizing all of these cravings that I didn't know that I had. And, and if I can cut those off, then that might allow me to love better, which I think is what I'm going for. Um, but I think this is also somewhere where, where doctrine really matters, where worldview really matters, um, and, and trying to get words around love and stories around love. What is the, what is the greatest, I mean, who is the greatest hero? Uh, who's, who's seen um, Avengers uh, Infinity War? Like, okay, that's, this, it's an important question. Who is the greatest Marvel hero? Like, is it Captain America with his, you know, um, you know, being a, being a, you know, nice straight down the middle, like follow the rules kind of a guy, or is it the, the, the party boy uh, Iron Man? Or um, I've just been handed a Captain America wallet. <laughs> um, wow, that was exciting. Uh, <laughs> Needs no words. Um, but, 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 you know, so, so the Christian claim is the greatest hero is Jesus, that that, that that is who we should all be be emulating. But, but that's a good conversation. What do we have? Not that we can't learn from Muhammad or, or, or Buddha, because they're also heroes. There's no question about that. But, but, but where are we, uh, where are we converging? Um, which of these, and, and in my view, which of these, these heroes is able to, to include or incorporate? Um, which, which tent is able to, to bring in all of these others? And maybe it's the, Maybe it is the the sort of um, the, the 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 tent of, of tolerance or the idea of you know God accepts all doctrines, but that, that that's hard because it's it doesn't that that seems really good for academics and like I, I most of my academic friends are on that boat. You go to like rural anywhere and that's like hard. Um, it's really hard, and so the hope for that like to to unite us all as a as a vision of God is is uh, is. It, it, is strained, um, and so so you know one of the other things I like about Christianity is I, I think that that Jesus as hero has a has a chance of uniting us in a way that um, that's that's special. Not to rule out the other heroes, not to rule out the renunciation of, of Buddhism or the submission of Islam. That those are good things too, um, and, and those also should be incorporated. Christians should really wrestle with and talk talk to and have be friends with um, those and invite them to brunch and have long conversations and, and try to learn from each other. Um, but, but I think that your question is, is very well put. Uh, what, is, what does it mean to love? And, and how do we deal with the fact that other people have different visions of what that would look like? Thank you. Just one thing to add, people have different visions of Jesus too, right? I mean, and so if we take any kind of central concept, there are people who believe in it much differently and practice it much differently. And there's some people who would say that they're followers of Jesus whose behaviors I would question whether or not they really are. And so, and the same thing as you, the point you made about love. I think it was a good one. These two last questions will be the last questions. Thank you. Hi, um, I have a question that was sort of spurred because of the story you told in the way that you came to the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Dr. Carrion, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, you mentioned that it was ultimately rational. And I'm curious as to what you mean by finding that 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 belief system was ultimately rational when like there's a, I don't know, there's a, there's some theologically opposing values. Like Kierkegaard's not exactly a Christian theologian, but he definitely makes claims saying like 
to be a man of faith is to be like absolutely against reason, like judging Abraham about the sacrifice of his son. It's not rational, but more of an act of faith, which is what made him a good man, the, the man of men, so to speak. Uh, so yeah, I'm just curious as to your take. It, it's this is a great question, um, and you know Kierkegaard has a uh, just somebody that I need to read a lot more of. One of one of my mentors is, uh, and in fact, there's a there's a great Veritas forum on the Veritas.org um, where uh, my mentor Jeff Schwartz talks in detail about his view on Kierkegaard and how that uh, that does integrate with Christianity. I, I found myself in the sort of okay, so so sort of what I would call orthodoxy has this has these like bounds and. You know, you look back to you know the, the the creeds of the early church, and there do seem to be certain beliefs. And Christianity, maybe uniquely, maybe not, um, but at least some people argue uniquely has these um, bounds of orthodoxy. That if you believe this sort of set of propositions, that that's like one of the requirements, maybe the maybe the requirement for being sort of in this circle and being out of it. So, for example, uh, there there are you know you can people use the phrase um, atheist Jew. You can't really use the phrase atheist Christian. Um, that one of the beliefs of Christian, one of the things of Christianity is you believe in God. Um, so, so to your question, um, I think that the um, I think that uh, I have lost the thread. Would you repeat your question? <laughs> my, my question is your definition of a, essentially what the definition Rational. of rationality is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Sorry, <laughs> I got off on it. Tangent there. Um, so, so okay. So there's this bound, these bounds of orthodoxy, and I think Kierkegaard is on the far like reason doesn't matter. Don't worry about figuring things out. Mystical side of the spectrum, um, and, and maybe not mystical, but like reason doesn't matter. I'm more on the other end where there's like uh, Thomas Aquinas is somebody I, I like you know like to listen to, and or I just don't listen to. He doesn't have a podcast. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> follow and, and follow his, his his you know this these sorts of ideas. And I think that on that end, I found that in my hyper-rationalistic, very unemotional, maybe suppressed, I'm not really sure what was going on when I was a teenager, but this idea of, it really was very intellectual and like, you know, what world, when you look at a worldview, what does it have in it? And I'd say that, um, you know, coherence um, is one. Uh, explanatory power is another. Uh, the, the not being ad hoc, did you just make that up right now when I answered your question kind of a thing? Like Christianity in conversation with other worldviews about, you know, why is there evil in the world? Uh, why does anything exist at all? Uh, you know, who is, you know, how do we even have a, a comprehensible universe? Uh, this is, all of these questions are, are challenging questions. And I, th I think the most, um, the, the best set of answers for me in that process, I, I thought came from Christianity. Um, and that, that, is a, that is a hypothesis that explained the data um, uh, best. Of course, it is a hypothesis and is you know being revised and changed and adapted. But but I think that 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 it was the it was the best that I found. Thanks. Um, my name is Cody, and this question is directed kind of just towards both of you. I felt like our discussion on the self kind of revolved around um, these parts of a person who are that's extra physical outside of the physical like choice and reflection on self um, personal will and then our discussion on spiritual health revolved more around the physical which I thought was interesting because we were talking about church attendance and shoveling people's walks as a way 
to bolster our spiritual health and finding purpose. I was wondering if there's a way in your guys' mind to separate purpose from physical actions um, and find like purpose to be within some spiritual realm that doesn't involve physical. Can you find purpose without physical action? Great question. I, I think that people can. Um, I think that it can feel certain meditative states, certain kinds of experiences of, um, I was thinking of Sufi dancing and other, but I guess that involves physical movement. So, but certain kinds of meditative states, I think can help people feel very much at one with the universe and with God and that that's quite possible. I do think, and I've had this experience myself, I remember especially thinking about this when I was in college, how I would be lying in bed and I felt so like filled with love, just filled with love. And then, then my first conversation with the first person I saw made me filled with not love. Um, and, you know, annoyance and all those things. But, and so, so I do think that there's something... Um, it's limited, is what I'm saying, is that experience of non-interactive, complete, self-reflective, spiritual meaning, that it's cool and great, but it's also limited in terms of um, when you get out of the meditative state and then you have to go to the store. I mean, there are certain kinds of real interactions that happen. Does that make sense? But I, I do think you can have that meaningful, purposeful, singular state, too. I think both are true. Yeah, and I think uh, the, the thing that came to mind uh, as you asked the question was um, uh, Viktor Frankl again, where you have literally zero control in a you know, concentration camp of your physical environment or what you're going to be doing during the day. Um, and yet some people were able to find meaning um, in that. And maybe it was connection with their, um, with their heritage or maybe it was connection to our hope for a future thing. But, but people were able to find different things despite no control. Um, it's an interesting observation too about the, the, um, where our conversation went between self and, um, and, uh, and, and the other parts of it. But um, I, I do think, um, I guess just to put it out there, there, there is such a thing as, as uh, Christian physicalism um, that is to say that you only believe that, that the, the immortal soul isn't anything other than matter, um, that it's sort of the form or shape of your, your physical body. So, so that the ch anything we talk about of, of choice or whatever is, is some kind of physical state in your brain. Um, and we can, I, mean, I guess we don't have time to talk about that, but, but there's, you know, in addition to the sort of more classically assumed, like, in the, immaterial soul that flies off to heaven there are others that uh, that emphasize the physical as well um and i but i do think that's important um and as a as a physician that's important that like and and i think as a believer in the incarnation that's that's important that that, that the, the the body can't really at least while we're on earth be fully separated or maybe even partly separated um from the body and it might just be ways of talking when we talk about purpose um, that, that, that there's a, a large extent to which there is, there's a correlating brain state. Um, but 
at the same time, that's not enough, that we need, we need higher language, we need more words, as both of us have been trying to avoid, more and more words, um, and maybe not answering questions. <laughs> if you like this and you want to hear more, like, share, review, and subscribe to this podcast. And from all of us here at the Veritas Forum, thank you.